Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. And the timing of this will be the last one before Christmas. So a very a merry and a happy Christmas to everyone that celebrates it. Very much so. I think we've got a bit of a, an active schedule planned as well, haven't we? I mean, we'll do another one next week before uh, New Year. But uh, I also believe uh, me and Grant are going to do a little follow-up on our Liverpool Arsenal, particularly after the, the game that we'll talk about later. Uh, so there'll be a, a double tap there at some point, probably 27th, 28th. We've had a chat about. And I think you might also be doing another one um, with Mark who kindly stepped in when I was away, weren't you? Yeah, I'll be taking out on road uh, with us with his new portable mics, trying that new setup. I'm sure it definitely won't go wrong. What's uh, that, taking out that. the portable mics in his truck? Yeah, you know, record, record it inevitably. In the cab of his truck. It'll be one of those where I go to his house, I'm like, oh, let's just do have a quick podcast, let's record it. And by the end of it, I'll be like, you know, I'm quite thirsty, actually. Should we just pop up to Ponte? And then next thing before you know it, you're in biggies. Someone's trying to throw a shoe at you. So, uh, Standard you know, night in Ponte. Yeah, exactly. It's, that'd be a good night in Ponte, uh, only having a, throw, a shoe thrown at you rather than a knife for once. But um, quite an eventful week for UFC. Of course, we had UFC 296 that had happened last weekend. I must profess I didn't stay up to watch it, although I did get the Pussy. highlights. <laughs> did get the highlights as every everyone we get over the last one that text you you up no response on that lazy cunt stayed in bed i actually did wake up about two hours or so after you'd sent that message by which point the main event had finished um and then i couldn't get back to sleep so that were very very annoying but i did watch it in its entirety uh, shortly after through very legitimate means of course you got up just in time for the main event i believe no, I got up, uh, I saw, I got up at just gone four, so I caught it, I missed Paddy Ferguson, but I watched that back later, so I got up and saw uh, Rachmanoff Thompson, Patojo Royale and main event, I saw them through live, so um, yeah. It feels like there isn't a better place to start than the main event then, considering we got a little bit riled up last week talking about the comments of Mr Chaos himself. Um very little chaos in, in the way of the main event. And the third time was indeed not the charm for Colby Covenant. To call it, to call, I mean, he, needs to change, he needs to change his name from chaos to dog shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, talk about a completely just absolutely wank performance. Everything that he's known for in terms of the forward pressure, the wrestling um he didn't do he got absolutely dominated and even to show i think edwards given that you know the comments covington had made there was a couple of moments where edwards was a little silly but edwards even wanted to grapple with him to i think to almost say look i can fucking beat you at your own game in a couple of a couple of times and actually did pretty well uh, on the ground against him but colvington looked awful he looked slow he looked old um, I'm sure there's a little bit of ring rust in there, but I'll be honest with you, despite all the shit talk and that, what, he, what he brings, there's two options for me for the UFC. One, I'd cut his ass because he's that shit. Two, which I can't see happening, is I'd love them to feed him to Rachmanov next, who will beat the living shit out of him. But given that Colby's not even ranked anymore, 
and, and Rachmanov has gone up, I think, to number three. I don't see that happening. But I'll be honest with you, I would not. David came out and, and slagged off his performance. I think Colby's done. I think he, I think that's it. I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if he was cut. Now he could probably quite easily go to one of the other promotions that might pay him pretty well and carry on his career. But as a UFC fighter and particularly at upper tier welterweight, done. Yeah, I mean, you can't talk the game that he talks and say the things that he said. And and we were quite vocal in this fight announcement. I know there was the build-up over the what, about a six-month period this year where it was, will they, won't they? Is Edwards actually going to fight Covington? Edwards is saying he doesn't want any part of Covington, not because he's worried about him, not because he doesn't think he can beat him, but because he's not deserving of a, a title fight. He's now not in three in his title fights. He just isn't good enough. Like you say, there's certain levels to it. I don't think they'll cut him. I think that's that's probably a little bit extreme, but he isn't and shouldn't be anywhere near that title picture. He just isn't good enough. And if you're going around saying stuff about people's dads being murdered, you're saying you know nasty stuff about uh, other champions, um, and you try to come across as this villain and this heel, you have to back that up. And he just doesn't do it. He is very much, I'm going to come out, my big boy trumps in the uh, the crowd. I'm going to dap him up before I get in the ring. I'm going to put on a show to get absolutely dominated and almost looking tentative and a little bit scared throughout. I don't know if he was worried about that head kick coming throughout the fight, but never really got on the front foot, never really imposed himself. I th- I probably could have given him one round if I'm being generous, but I, I thought that at least four of them were Edwards, and I don't think there's any dispute in that. Easy for yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you're spot on that he was wary. He was nothing like you've normally seen in a Colby in terms of bringing it forward. He clearly was, as you say, wary of that head kick and, and Edwards' power generally. Um, Edwards was tearing up his leg and you could see the welch on his leg, which made his speech afterwards even more funny. So not only does he get completely and utterly dominated in a fight, which anyone, a blind man, could have watched that and seen that he got dominated. He he, he acts surprised at the result and then in his post-match speech does nothing but stick his tongue six feet up Trump's ass, talks nothing about the fight and just kisses Trump's ass. And that alone for me, I was like, you are dog shit. And as I said, I, I genuinely would cut him because I don't think he offers anything at all at that weight anymore. When you've got these up-and-comers like Rachmanov, who will come on to, like people like Islam, who are wanting to step up. Um, he's nowhere near. He's just, he's, as you say, he's, he'd just be fighting for money now. And he was a massive disappointment. Even even he must be completely and utterly disappointed with that performance. It was atrocious. It's one of the worst title fights or performances in a title fight I've seen in a long time. I think it was the biggest issue I had with it entirely, other than the fight performance itself, but we're talking about post-match here, is his reaction. And everyone knew at the end of that fight that Edwards had won it comfortably. He looked shocked, did Covington, that he'd lost it. 
He had the the post-fight press conference where he talked about, I thought that the third, the fourth, and the fifth round were mine. The judges were biased. What bias in America to an American fighter when we always talk about the homer always usually wins? It's just absolute nonsense. He got his ass kicked from pillar to post, and then it, I haven't even got a scratch on me. You, you, you're going to be yeah, walking with a crutch. On his face. You're yeah. going to be walking with a crutch for about a week, motherfucker, from those those leg kicks. So I just we had the it, cheek again. at the end. Sorry, he, he had the cheek to turn around and say. I started checking those kicks at the end. I thought that they'd won, and then they only give it against me because I support Trump and everyone hates Trump. I'm like, what are you talking about? He, he checked one kick. He checked one kick the whole time, and his leg was torn up. And as you say, he to to to, to pretend. Uh, and the worst thing was, I don't even think that was an act. I, I, some people, you know, they they do that to try and influence the judges. That put the hand up. We've seen that plenty of times in close fights. But to act surprised in the way he had when he got absolutely dominated was just absolutely ridiculous. And as you say, for me, absolutely done. Get rid of him. Let's talk for the positive side of things. I agree entirely. Um, Covington needs to be put to one side now. He shouldn't be anywhere near the title picture. Either cut him, put him into the, the lower fights, or build him for someone like Rachmanov, who would be a perfect uh, opportunity, I think, for Ratmanov to just come in and everyone would support him in that fight. Um, obviously, there's no next step being confirmed for Leon at this stage. Are we thinking that he's going to welcome someone like the rematch with Bilal? Obviously, there was the iPod controversy involved there. Do we see Ratmanov immediately step up, as was the impressive nature of his performance against Thompson? Or is there someone else in mind? Three options for me. Um, Balao is probably the most deserving, if we're being honest, particularly after the eye poke uh, and how that won. Now, one thing people forget about that, that eye poke happened, I think, in the second round and Edwards very easily won the first round. So that's a good sign for a start for our boy. That's 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 the first option. Rachmanov leaping over Balao given the quality of his performance, 18 wins, 18 finishes, and just how impressive he looks would be the other option. The only one that I've got a sneaky suspicion, if I'm being honest, I could see, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Islam and they stick that on 300. I'm just going to say 300 is perfect. They they, they bump up up Islam to give him his chance for, for champ champ. And that would be the type of fight that they're looking for on 300. Um, so it's a headliner is that in it as well, to be fair. Champion that, champ. Yeah. That, that, that's the one for me. But as you say, Bilal probably is the most deserving. He sat out. The only other thing you could do, particularly if you were going to go for the, you know, the, the money spinner of the Islam uh, Edwards fight, would be on the same card. You could go Bilal Rachmanov as a title eliminator and winner of that gets the next shot at the champ. That would be the the other. If you're going to do that, that would be the obvious secondary move. But it's got to be what I can't see any way. It's not one of those three. I get the feeling it won't be the last one um, unless it's on 300, unless it's the, the headliner, which you could definitely see that. I can't. I can't see the justification for Dana White coming out and saying, 
I think that this should be done for this reason because he's a very business orientated man. He knows that if one of those loses, let's say Edwards beats Islam, that changes the entire complexion of the UFC because Islam being pound pound number one, I believe, um, he looks unstoppable. Even if he steps up and he's beaten, I appreciate stepping up isn't always the, the best option. You look at Volk, but he's still being beaten then. And that goes on his, his record and that changes things significantly. So would Dana White want that? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with you, but I always feel that you get an element of slack, if that's the right word for it, or an element of um, if you're stepping up like that, that kind of is a slightly mitigating factor. So let, let's say that did happen and Islam loses. It's like, well, he went up. He tried to be great. He dared to be great. Fair play. Um, you know, he's still the lightweight champion. He still gets to keep his belt. It just shows that maybe it's a, a step too far for him. But um, the one that I would be worried about, if I'm talking, obviously, as a, as a massive Edwards fan, is Rachmanov. Because he is, again, we'll, we'll come on to it, we'll skip, but so impressive in every area of MMA. He's an absolute athlete. He can do anything very, I mean, he's like an eight or nine out of 10 at everything. He's a complete sleeper. He's the bogeyman of that division. No one wants to fight him, which get props to Stephen Thompson for taking that fight. Um, and what I love about him the most is the epitome of that kind of, stoic he reminds me in a lot of ways of Fedor never talks smack doesn't even talk basically but just turns up and does results so um he would be the one that if I was Edwards and I'm Edwards manager I'm trying to keep him away from Ratmanov because I think that's a bad matchup I think Edwards can take Bilal I think Edwards could take Islam uh, on the size Ratmanov I think is a different kettle of fish and I think he's the next superstar let's skip over um Pantogian and Royval for now we'll come back to it just because we're talking about Rachmanov his performance against Stephen Thompson was unbelievably impressive obviously it's um the first time that Thompson who I think he's about 40 now and you got to take his his age into account I suppose um and also not understating what Ramanov has done there. But it's the first time he's ever been submitted in a pro fight. Uh, Ramanov obviously now has eight knockouts and 10 submissions on his resume. He's never been taken the distance. Uh, all 18 fights that he's had and all 18 wins that he's had have been by finishes. He's now 6-0 in the UFC. Looks outstanding. Looks the next top prospect. Does he do Edwards? Don't like to say it. But I think he does. If I, I, so I'm saying, if I was Edward's team, I'm, I'm trying to keep him away from him because there's only so long you can do that. That's not going to be possible for, for, forever. But he is a scary dude and he is the equivalent, if you look at it MMA-wise, of um, Bert Abiev. Finished every single fight he's ever had. And I might be wrong here. Uh, I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I'm not sure there's ever been anyone in MMA with a record of 18 wins and 18 finishes. That is fucking phenomenal. And the ability, as you say, that kind of 50-50 split that he's got, he's not an Islam that 
is going to take you down and only got one way to win really a Khabib-esque type he, he he can win and he can knock people out and he can submit you um I mean a couple of notes I've got on that in, in the first round he, he, he's clinching Thompson against the cage very very clever move in terms of draining Thompson having someone hang on you like that and just pushing you against the cage is really draining and for someone that's never done an MMA kind of it's hard to to fathom how tiring that is just having someone on you and their weight on you the whole time wasn't a great first round if we're totally honest not a great deal happened but I gave it 10-9 Rachmanov second round um Thompson came out looking a lot better a couple of good kicks a uh, big body kick that looked like caught Rachmanov's attention but within a minute Back to exactly the same again. Back to the clinch against the cage. Rachmanov gets the takedown. He's working really well from, from back control. He gets uh, Thompson in a, in a terrible position where you're on the floor with an arm pinned behind your back. And that is just nearly as bad as it gets because you've got one hand to defend yourself. You've got very it's raining shots down. Um, he went for the rear naked choke, which... I've got, I'll be honest, complete props to Stephen Thompson for how he got out of that because that was fucking deep. And the eight out of 10 people are tapping from that first rear naked choke. Somehow he survives, but he's still on the bottom. But then the transition from Rachmanov from there to the back to the rear naked choke flattens him out and puts it in and chokes him out with, I think it was four or five seconds left of the round. Um, but Phenomenal, phenomenal performance from Ratmanoff. Well, Thompson showed why we were so complimentary about him last week in that even when it looks like he's down and out, as you say, it looked like he was he was gone with that first choke. Gets out of it and you think, okay, no, he's done very well. And all of a sudden he's all back in and you know he's back to work on it. And that's the scary nature of Ratmanoff. And that's why I think a lot of people like we're doing now hype him up so significantly he seems to be the complete package and to have that skill set behind you of all the different things that he can do he's got the makings of a champion now whether that's at the expense of Edwards or whether that's a bit further down the line I would be willing to put a lot of money that Shapkat Rachmanov becomes the welterweight champion uh, at one point in his career I'd go as far to say I could see him being a champ champ because he's a big guy as well. I think he could quite easily go up um, with a little bit of um, training and uh, put a little bit more muscle on uh, up to 185 and could easily is a bad matchup for for anyone at 185 as well. Um, You know, Strickland, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the problem you've got with someone like Ratmanov, which is a ridiculous point to even make, really, given how good he is because his skills do the talking, but because he can't speak English, because he doesn't talk or smack talk, that doesn't give you... Look at Kobe. You know, Kobe's talked his way into where he is. He's not He's not fit enough to tie up um, Ratmanov's gloves in terms of skill level. Uh, and that's the only problem I always think with guys coming over from Dagestan, Rachmanov from Kazakhstan, um, is they need to learn, far from me to give anyone advice uh, in that situation, but he needs to learn English quickly 
and he needs to learn to be able to start doing a little bit of that smack talk to elevate that profile because as much as it shouldn't be the case that skill alone gets you there, we know that that doesn't really work in the UFC and ultimately there are certain people that Khabib was the same, is you know, for a long time couldn't speak uh, English, um, you know, Islam very much similar as well. So for, for me, part of his evolution has to be English lessons, get talking a bit more, getting more of a, a buzz on social media about things more than simply a skill set, which shouldn't be the case. But we know in today's world that kind of presence and social media and posts and bullshit and all the rest of it does make a difference. And that's the only thing that slows his ascent. If he could speak English and he could give some some smack talk back, I would instantly put him up there in the top five of the best UFC prospects, you know, along there with, you know, your your Pereiras, your, your Aspinals, those up and coming fighters that have that that look magic. You know, he he's skill wise, he is incredible. But that unfortunately will be held against him. I don't disagree at all, and I think that's it's a very sad indictment of where the UFC is and, and where MMA is in general. Um, and it's it shows why. And don't get me wrong, there's there's clearly other reasons, and funding is a, a big part of that. But it shows why the UFC is above things like Ryzen and One because you get the fights, but you also get the promotion. It shows exactly why Conor McGregor was so highly popular during his uh, ascent to the top uh, and why he's still held in such high regard, despite the fact that he doesn't look anywhere near the fighter that he used to do and hasn't fought in a significant period of time. Um, Rachmanov is, on the skill set alone, one of the best welterweights that I think I've seen while being watching it in the last few years. I'm still a newcomer to this, uh, relatively anyway, um, definitely in comparison to yourself. And the fact that I, I sit here and agree entirely with what you're saying, that just because he doesn't speak English means that his chances of a title fight are significantly reduced is... It's a joke, really. It is. It is completely. It's just so well rounded. That, that that's that's the thing I haven't seen for a long time. Someone coming out of the blocks like that is someone so well rounded. He can do everything, and is incredibly proficient at everything. As you say, he's he's you know most fighters have a background of some martial art, whether that's wrestling, whether that's striking, boxing, kickboxing, and then build on that skill set. I'm not entirely sure, if I'm honest with you, what his grounding was, but he just looks phenomenal wherever the fight goes. And that that's the problem, is how do you solve that puzzle of fighting him? Do you fight him on his feet? Now, you, the, one of the things that I did think was telling was they did a translation of his corner uh, in between the first and second round, and they were saying to him, don't trade with him. So they, they clearly, his corner was saying, Thompson is dangerous. You're a good striker, but you may be not on his level striking, even though you're very good. Take him down because that's clearly his weakness. So um, I thought that was slightly telling. But as you say, I, I can't remember a more rounded prospect in, as you say, in, in, in probably since John Jones, if I'm honest with you. That, that's the... That's the kind of 
star power and skill level he has is that he should be talked about as a prospect in 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 those uh, lofty uh, heights because he's just absolutely incredible at everything. Let's go back to Pantoja and Royval then. Let's not spend too much time on this I've because it's got one of the most boring fights. On this, literally <laughs> one of the, the most boring title fights ever. Like Pantoja should be disgusted with himself in terms of how he won that fight. He 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 went out there to win the title, not to make a statement. He just took him down at will. I mean. Royale needs to seriously work on if he's going to come back and be a challenger on his takedown defence. I think they gave a, a, a point halfway through where his takedown defence in the UFC is something like 37%. And even Cormier said, like, anyone can take him down. Like, that's that's how poor um, he is in, in that respect. So he's got a lot of work to do there. The only sad thing for me was that the way he came out in the third round, or sorry, fifth round, if he'd done that for the whole fight, it might have been slightly different. You could see the urgency. He was piecing him up on the feet. Um, he managed to kind of avoid the takedown until the sort of very last minute or two when Pantoja just got him and laid and prayed again. But um, Pantoja is very good, but definitely doesn't deserve a lot of credit for that victory, it wasn't an impressive victory and it wasn't the way someone who wants to make a statement wins a title fight, if you ask me. Well, it's certainly not going to win fight of the year, um, if we put it that way. He he had gone Might out... Might win the most game. boring fight of the year, <laughs> but um, it's definitely not winning fight of the year, I agree. He'd gone out with a game plan, I think. I know that, obviously, he had submitted Rival in their first meeting potentially was wanting to do it again, as every fighter would. But he nearly swept the scorecards. It was a matter of rival being too slow in the early exchanges. Obviously, he had to compete with a number of tough positions throughout the fight whenever it went to the ground. And like you say, he got that little bit of a jolt of energy. As we got later on in the fight, tried to do a little bit more in the fourth, tried to carry that momentum into the fifth. Um, it, It just didn't really ever set fire and it was one of those where it like I say it, it just there is there and it? it's just one of those fights that you see it it's a tick box for Pantoja he moves on to the next it's not the most electric of divisions that the UFC has and let's hope that we never see a fight as uh, as miserable as that again but before we do um conclude I think there's two more fights that we've got to definitely mention first being unfortunately um Tony Ferguson did not carry the boats. He was uh, he was not prepared. Doesn't matter how much cardio that he apparently has done and how much sick he's thrown up, he just got bad for fifteen minutes, didn't he? He almost got finished in the first, which was very sad to see. Um, Paddy with a fantastic knee, by the way, very impressive as that. But it was just all three rounds, completely unanimous. Boring. I mean, he came and... out looking good. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I've got a few breakdowns on, on, on the on on in terms of uh, on the rounds. Uh, I mean, obviously, Goggins was in the corner. Got him. I don't know if you saw. They got panned to him uh, just as that he's on the ring walk and got a massive cheer. So everybody loves a bit of Goggins. Uh, I thought Ferguson came out looking good, but they both clipped each other. The moment there is a massive combo from Paddy. Drop Ferguson. 
And from that point, he's on his back and all over him, flattened him out, raining shots down and was quite lucky, to be perfectly honest, to survive that round. Um, second round, um, again, just Paddy. It's probably, I'll be honest, I thought given the stick that Paddy's taken over the years, that's the best he's ever looked in the UFC agreed. for me. Yeah, uh, agreed. He, he, he looks like he'd gone back to the drawing board. He'd taken a lot of the criticism that people had given him on board. Um, he looked, you know, a lot better. Um, the only thing I would say is he did clearly tire in the third round. And that was when you did see the Goggins training kick in. Because Ferguson was, even though he'd been beaten up and, and, and pretty much smashed for those uh, two rounds... He was definitely the fresher fighter. Um, he did go for a guillotine towards the end of the, the fight. Uh, the crowd are chanting for him. But as you say, Paddy is super underestimated in terms of grappling. Um, he's a black belt, doesn't use his grappling enough because he's very, very good. And as you say, super underrated. But I'd given it as a clean sweep 30-27 Paddy. Uh, and all judges agreed. Is it the end for Tony Ferguson in the UFC? I think it is, personally. I think that I saw Dana say he would like him to retire, which is never a good sign from your boss. Um, It's whether or not Tony can convince him to give him one more fight. Personally, I don't think that will happen. I, If I have to be honest, I think Tony gets cut. I think on that losing streak, on those... And one thing, again, you've got to mention about that losing streak is the calibre of people he's fought. You know, he might be on a seven-fight or eight-fight losing streak, but he's fought five of the best in the world. The only one for me that I would say, and, and this is pretty much common uh, generally, is the fight with Gus, Justin Gagey changed him. He's never been the same since yeah. that Justin Gagey fight. Justin Gagey fucked him up. And literally, that's when that decline started and I have no doubt that he has lasting medical brain damage from the way, it, I mean, you cannot fault the man for his resolve and the fact that he never gives up, but he's almost too tough for his own good against Gagey and that started the slide. He's lost to Oliveira, you know, he's, he's not losing to bums, which is one thing you'd certainly have to say takes into his account, but he's 39 does he want to take any more? Personally, again, I think sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind. Dana cuts him, I think, to try and be nice to him. The only thing I would say, I don't personally see Ferguson giving up. I think he would resurface in the PFL or somewhere like that. And you never know, against lower quality opposition, he might be able to make another run of it and, and, and get a few victories. But I think he's that... It, Done for me in the UFC, and I would not be in the least surprised if he was. I tell you, I doubt there's ever been, and that shows you the fact that he's a fan favourite and how much Dana appreciates him. I'd almost guarantee there's never been a fighter on a losing streak as long as that that hasn't been cut. No chance. The, the amount of times that you see someone, I mean, you look at the Ultimate Fighter every time you see that, and you see the veterans that are on it. They will make a point of. Yeah, I won my first fight and then I lost the next two and then I were cut. You never see someone you get saying... Three, three or four. Three or four, yeah. four losses normally is absolutely done. The only other one that even springs to mind that got close to that was Anderson Silva. 
And I mean, he's the GOAT. You've got to give him a go. That's different. I'm pretty, yeah. Pretty sure he was on a six fight losing streak when they when when he retired, uh, as it were. But he say he's a different kettle of fish. But I think in some ways the UFC need to be cruel to be kind to cut him. But sadly, I don't. I think Ferguson still feels he's got uh, enough in him, and and I wouldn't blame him if you know. Again, we, we've seen in combat sports, we it's been well t- documented. We've talked about um, uh, Fury. We've talked about Volk in terms of how they say, look, if I'm not training for a fight and I'm sat on the couch, I'm going crazy. I'm going mental. I haven't got anything to do. Tony might be one of those guys. He's a real worker. But equally, at what point do his family step in and say, look, Tony, we don't want to see you with serious brain damage at 50 because you keep taking these beatings. And I think sometimes the coaches, the family need to step in and say, look, man, you've had a good run. You know, you, you go down as you're not going to be a legend, but you he'll, he'll probably get into the Hall of Fame at some point. I would have thought he'll make the Hall of Fame interim title holder. Um, you know, went on a, a tear of eight or nine strike win streak uh, at one point. So he is certainly, um, you know, a, a fantastic mixed martial artist and been terrific over the years. Father time, mate, catches up with all of us and um, it's just caught up with him a bit quicker. And half of that is down to his own toughness and his own willingness to fight the best of the world it's never asked for an easy fight you know a lot of people they lose to Gagey, they lose to Oliveira they lose to Poirier they're like look chuck chuck me a bum give me give me a win look look at look at Connor when uh he got thrown Cerrone that was just given to him to make him look good so he could light him up and get his win streak back Tony's never asked for that Tony's never been given that so as you say for me out of kindness, that sounds harsh, I think he gets cut. Last one to mention then. Uh, we had the opening of the main card was Josh Emmett and Bryce Mitchell. I think Bryce Mitchell had gone into this as the the favourite, which was a little bit shocking to me, a little bit surprising to see how much of a favourite he was. Um, some knockout and one of those where when he, he takes him down, it's such a swift um, punch from Emmett to take down Mitchell and to spark him out. But then he's laid on the floor. It looks like he's convulsing a little bit, looks very much in trouble. They got, obviously, the doctors in very, very quickly. Um, never liked to see that side of things, but very impressive from Emmett. No one likes to see that, but Emmett, surprisingly, uh, now has the most KOs in featherweight history. And the guy's built like a fucking tank and has a nuclear bomb of a right hand. He, 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 he's probably the hardest hitting featherweight ever. I think that, that might be fair to say. He's the featherweight equivalent of um, Poetan. He catches you. Good night. You're out. There's no chance. Um, as you say, hit him so hard. He was convulsing. He couldn't get up. He could hardly walk. I thought it was really poor cornering and management after the fight. Personally, in Bryce's... Get that motherfucker a stool. Give him a stool. Let him sit down for five minutes. Trying to get him up and walk him out the cage, I thought was was completely out of order and, and almost dangerous. He needed to sit down and 
gather himself because it was hit, he was hit that hard. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but fair play to him because again he, he's he's a character, Bryce. I always like him. Again, infamously the one that stuck his dip the drill down his pants and fucking ripped his scrotum or whatever he did with the fucking drill. Um, but he actually posted on Instagram. I don't know if you saw this, but he actually thanked Emmett in saying, I really appreciate the fact that you didn't hit me again. You laid me out. It was a walk-off KO. You didn't dive on me. You didn't finish me anymore. You're like, respect. And I thought that was good. That's nice to see from someone. And again, it, let's be, it was not needed. The way he hit him and the way he dropped, he was out the second that right hand connected. But Emmett is always going to be one of those guys that he's never going to be fighting or be able to beat the best guys in the division unless he catches a lucky punch. He's had chances against far higher ranked people and lost. But as someone to watch and, a, you know, a, a fan favourite, he's, he's he's like a lower weight gaugey to me. Uh, Josh Emmett's fighting, I'm watching it because you know... If he's not, if he if he wins, it's going to be an incredible KO. And I did look back and I saw a uh, highlight footage, and it's worth googling for anyone if they haven't seen it on YouTube. But his knockouts, he just fucking stiffens people, like not lays them out, fully stiffens them into oblivion. So that man, as I say, has a nuclear bomb in his fucking fists. Before we get into the weekend's football, uh, both last and coming, we've got to talk about this because the European Super League is back. Um, There was the big court case that occurred this morning. We're recording this on the the Thursday evening. Um, European Court of Justice had come out and essentially dealt a significant blow, quote-unquote, to UEFA from FIFA in their efforts to kill off the Super League um, because they had said that both UEFA and FIFA had acted unlawfully by blocking the Rebel Tournament when it was initially launched back in... It's 2021, by the way, which we're nearly in 2024, and this all started in 2021. The speed in which time is flying is ridiculous. So much so, I don't think we mentioned it at the very beginning... Um, this is mine and Ian's last week of working together, which is how quickly everything has gone. It's sort of blown by, it's Ian's gone off. End of an era, mate. Very sad. Yeah. We haven't really talked about that. It's a very sad day. That uh, I mean, it's particularly when you had yesterday, today, and uh, tomorrow off. You didn't even have the nicety to stay with your mentor in his office for his last week before I start my new role in, in January. But... Uh, Side note, let's not get too emotional. It has been a pleasure working with you uh, and very, very sad all round that we won't be working together going forwards. Uh, but we will obviously be continuing to do the podcast. And um, without getting too emotional, I've made a friend for life. I'm happy to be a bit sincere in these moments. Gimp. Um, anyway, moving on before he cries. Was that not a little quote from somebody wrote in my leaving card? Is that I, I just that. said that? I want uh, me that wrote it. Yeah. Prove it. it. Okay. Everyone's got that type of spider writing these days. Uh, oh, prove it. You want me to take a picture and put it on socials, do you? Is that, is, is that what you want? Uh, but yeah, very sad, as you say. Um, but Matt, Liverpool, man, you. 
Um, whoa, 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 whoa. And... Don't, what, don't, don't just skip over the UEFA, the, the European Super League that we just sorry about. back to this. Just, whoa, it leaves me in my job, and then all of a sudden starts just smashing me down on podcasting. You can talk about whatever. I've got a very clear structure on this. Anyway, so European Super League is back. A twenty twenty, A twenty two. I think it is. Are the company that are backing them? They have come out and said the UEFA monopoly is over. Football is free. Where we're going to move this forward again? They have announced that, despite what they said previously, participation will be based on sporting merit. That there's no permanent members anymore. The league will feature promotion and relegation. There's like the blue league, the green league, all this absolute nonsense. Uh, it'll also include women's football now as well because. They're trying to appeal to all range of uh, football fans. It's just nonsense. So many competitions. The Premier League have come out and condemned it. La Liga I'd like have come to hear Jerry Barton's it. view on that. I'd like to uh, <laughs> yeah. be interested in that. But I- I'll be honest, this one passed me by a bit because it came out today. And as I say, you've been doing fuck all because uh, you've had the day off. But I've just pulled up a little thing in front of me just to give a bit more detail. So as I said, this one, you-, you mentioned it prior to the podcast and uh, I wasn't super aware um, hopefully, again, England. I just do not see any way any English teams are going to get into this. No matter what they say, bring it back. It will die a death again. It's bollocks. But I've got a few bits here that I think are worth reading out, which uh, I don't know. I'm sure you had already read in your, your prep, your prep that you don't seem to be doing these days, and that I pick up for you. But apparently, it says here the little article I'm reading. Key elements of the new format include. 64 teams in three leagues. How silly is this? A Star League and a Gold League as the top two tiers consisting of 16 clubs each and the Blue League comprised of 32 clubs. Participation is based on sporting merit with no permanent members. There's annual promotion and relegation between leagues. Promotion into the Blue League is based on domestic league performance. Home and away games in groups of eight, meaning a minimum of 14 matches a year. A knockout stage will determine the champions of each league and promotion. Midweek matches to compete with current UEFA competitions, not interfering with the domestic league calendars. Clubs will be selected for the inaugural season based on an index of transparent performance sport-based criteria which I fucking love to see. Strong financial sustainability rules will be in place to ensure a level playing field. Bollocks. Um, The women's competition will run alongside the men and will only feature the star in the gold leagues. Games will be available to watch for free on a a new streaming platform called Unify. Because, of course, that streaming platform will be completely free and they won't do what BT Sports did where they say, oh, you get it free for a month and then we're charging you 15 quid a, a month on top of that. It's nonsense. It won't work. Uh, we had discussed this in significant length back in 2021 when this first all got announced or 2022 when this all first got announced. Um, there is no merit to this. The Premier League have condemned it. The Liga have con- con- condemned it. PSG have said no. Um other teams, the bigger teams have all said no. I think Real Madrid will probably still be interested because Perez is a bit of a knob. But only, I swear, the only ones that friendly, seem to be it? really gunning is Real and Barca. And that's because 
which one one makes no sense to me because the way that the Spanish league money is distributed is not like the Premier League where it's fair. It's completely based on the team's size. So probably Barca and Real get more of the money right, TV rights, than probably all the other teams put together. So why they're going for more money is just fucking greedy. But for some reason, so you said that Pe- Perez is such a dick, he just can't let it go. And he's just one of those old men that has got this idea in his mind and he's just so stubborn that he keeps pushing through. But it's not, I tell you now, it will not happen. Despite... It won't. And I, I think genuinely Perez is terrified because of what's happening this season. And as we, we speak now, Girona are currently 1-0 up against Betis, which puts them five points clear at the top of the league. They're having a, an outstanding season, which is always fantastic to watch. Got a little bet on them, so I've just seen that pop yeah. up. Oh, nil. Yeah, uh, t- over, two, over two goals and uh, Girona all draw is my bet at 3-1. to one. Well, That's probably why he's having a bit of a hissy fit, but stuff like that is fantastic. And that's why these leagues are so important in the Super League. And, and the other thing, I know you mentioned there about um, there will be certain basically profit and sustainability rules and, and financial fair play and all that sort of thing that they would incorporate into their leagues. How the fuck do you do that if they have different rules in different leagues? Are you going to suddenly say, oh, City, yeah, you've spent a billion pounds in the Premier League and that seems to be acceptable. But in our league, you can't spend that. So, all right, okay. So, what do you want us to do? Yeah, exactly. Do we have to so leave this, some of us players you're at fine, you're, you're fine to carry on in the Super League, but sadly, you get loads of sanctions and you get dropped down to the Championship. In the, it makes no sense. The whole concept yeah. is just fucking nonsense. And as you say, I know it's resurfaced. You mentioned about putting it on. Like I said, I just done a little bit of reading there while we were talking, but. I just don't see it happening, mate. I think it's bullshit. I think it's bluster. I think it's Perez tension-seeking, trying to get a little bit more, you know, in the media. And I think you're right that a lot of that is based on the fact that Real aren't tearing it up this season. And fair play, I mean, talk about a team that you'd never expect to be challenging for the title. But one thing you would have to say, just I think it's worth mentioning in this, Girona are obviously are one of the teams that are in Man City stable. So they do have financial backing. They do get a lot of relatively decent players on loan from City and the other clubs that City own. So it doesn't make it not incredibly surprising that they're doing so well. And um, it's really good for a change to see someone else up there other than, you know, obviously Real and Barca always... You've occasionally had teams where they've had, you know, Villarreal for a season. You've had, you know, um, Valencia back in the day. There's even, you know, going back 20 odd years or so, Deportivo. So it's nice to see someone else putting on a bit of a challenge on these teams and having a bit more. It reflects in some ways the Premier League that's far more exciting for uh, a change. And we won't go into it as well because we'll be going down a rabbit hole. But it'll be very interesting to see if they keep this up and then qualify for the Champions League. Like you say, I think it's about 47% is owned by the City Football Group. So if they get Champions League football, I'm not entirely sure how that works. I don't know if they've got to own over a certain percentage or under a certain percentage is fine. But if you've then got Girona and you've also got City in the same competition... Does that cause an issue? Are you then potentially... My understanding, and I may be wrong here, is it's allowed that they can't... 
face each other. So they couldn't be in the same So we fix the draws because that would seem nonsense. Well, they, not fix the draws, but they would be made, it would, they would be clearly separated in pots that couldn't be put together. The interesting point would be what happens if they both qualify, they whittle it down through the, the, the quarters and the semis, and then they have to play. That yeah. then does create a problem. But that's there's a lot for, for that to happen. But my understanding is that doesn't stop them being in but they would be deliberately, it would be insured in the same way that English teams can't be, no team from the same country can go into the uh, group stages together. It would be the same with them too, that they would be specifically kept apart in the group stages. And let's be honest as well, a team like Girona, they've got, to me, I might be wrong again, I don't know enough about them if I'm honest, but they've got an Ajax uh, a fire-annoyed feel to them that they have a really good season and they just get absolutely rinsed for all their good players by the better teams. So even if they do qualify, will they be a shadow of themselves next season because the two or three players that are outstanding and doing really well for them have been picked up by other teams? So I think there's probably a long way to go before that becomes a big issue but it's certainly something that's worth mentioning and could be interesting playing out down the line. Yeah, certainly one to keep your eye on. Um, let's talk about English football then. Let's talk about the Premier League and let's talk about the most boring game of football that I have seen all season. Um, it was the equivalent of Patoja Royale, I think you could probably say, <laughs> wouldn't you? It's a very uh, good analogy. An analogy, um, which was so disappointing for... The form Liverpool, again, Liverpool haven't been in the best form, but we've been winning games. Man U were appalling. Now, Liverpool were not much better. I, again, even with my biased view, I'm not going to lie. Both sides were terrible. Um, as I saw it, Liverpool had the better chances. They had three unmarked headers, which Gakpo, Canate and Van Dijk all headed over with three headers. However, if you're being honest, Man U probably had the best chance, which was Hoyland clean through and an outstanding save, saved again by Alisson, saved us the points. A, a striker with a bit of composure would have scored that, I think. Yeah. Was that an outstanding Mo, save or it if just. That's Mo, or, if that's Mo or, or Nunes, that's going in. If, if it's Salah, yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I would. I mean, you have a knack of hyping Allison up to unreasonable levels. I wouldn't say it's that good of a save. He has to score it. It's a very acceptable this save. This is why it's a great save, because he has to score it. Well, no, because it's just a shit shot. If, I, if I'm if i one-on-one and I roll the ball towards someone and he saves it, that doesn't mean it's a good save. It means it's an atrocious finish. And he had someone to play it onto as well. But it would just it would drab. Drab is the best way I can describe it. Man United had essentially set up to play a low block consistently. They didn't look like they wanted to counter-attack to a certain extent. It was all about making sure that Liverpool didn't score. And a lot of that is helped and aided significantly by Liverpool failing to put away some fantastic chances. You mentioned the three headers. Had your chances. You could have won that. And it was one of those games that on a different day, like we saw when you played West Ham, you get those chances and you put them away. It's a completely different score, even if a team is playing a low block. But I mean, they Man United, yeah, absolutely. But the point for them is a fantastic result. 
absolutely. at the end of the day, and it's the way that two points drop for us chasing the title. Yeah. Um, the the thing that I suppose would be the most disappointing, I would say, for Liverpool is I think I can't remember a game where we had so many key players have completely off games. Slobazai and Salah were appalling. You know, Slobazai has been fantastic all season. Again, go jumping ahead to the West Ham. Screamer of a goal, playing all over the park. His touch and his final ball was appalling. Mo had a shocker. We had people all over the park. Nobody played well for us. Um, best player for me, if I'm honest, I thought was Endo. I thought Endo had a good game, breaking things up, doing things in the middle of the park. And I thought we might have a good chance that I know there was a red card, which was, was probably quite harsh for the double descent. But very early on, there were both Man U's holding players who were on yellow cards. So there was a chance for us there. If we'd run at them their midfield and we'd managed to maybe get one of them sent off earlier, we could have done a bit like we did against, say, Palace, and that could have changed it. But yeah, the, le- the less said about the game, the better, really. It was just absolutely absolutely bullshit well is it the the biggest frustration for you i suppose is with man city dropping points again their run of form is atrocious uh continuing they were two nil up against palace ended up drawing two all for very late i think it was a penalty wasn't it um their form is probably the worst that we've ever seen under guardiola don't get me wrong i absolutely expect him to turn it round and at the turn of the year in a month or so we're gonna have de bruyne back in that team you're going to be in a position where it's the, the January transfer window. We know what City do. They have a tendency to spend if they start to panic. They bring in one or two players in that, and then all of a sudden that form changes. And I think from a defensive midfielder point, I would be expecting that they're going to bring someone in because you're almost certainly going to see Calvin Phillips get shipped out, whether it's Newcastle, Juventus, and there's talk of him going to Manchester United as well, which would be a little bit disgusting to myself as a Leeds fan. Um, I don't think it's in any way going to affect the league. I still expect City to run away with it. And I'll be honest, and you're not going to like this, I don't think Liverpool are title contenders at this point in time. That might change as the season goes on. I think Arsenal are the only team that really look to not only be playing well consistently, but to be picking up the points. Liverpool are picking up the points and doing very, very well to pull the rabbit out of the hat. But that can only last for so long. And it's the same argument that I give with regards to Leeds in the Championship and, you know, Ipswich pulling these results out of their arse, essentially, when it looks like Leeds can't do that for the life of them. I get that that's the sign of champions and I get that that's what we've discussed before, but I think your form needs to change to the point where you're not just picking up points, you are decimating these teams that you should be decimating. Scum there were were there for the taking and that should have been, you know, 4 5 nil. It should have been one of those standout results where Man United were thrown to the sword as they deserved to be. Didn't look like they were there at all to be winning the game and Liverpool looked the better team. But that's the difference between winning the league and that's the difference between finishing top four for me. No, no, I, I totally agree with you. And as, as much as it pains me, I think that was probably a, a wake-up call for Liverpool fans that, you know, that are getting carried away that we are in with the league. I still think we're easy top four, uh, but we've got some big games coming up and we'll come on to discuss uh, this weekend's uh, big game. But yeah, we've got to be winning those games. I hate to ever agree with you, and particularly when it's about Liverpool, but 
I would agree that I think City and Arsenal now look like the two clear favourites. The only thing I would say is, is Pep has got to be concerned because I had a quick look into, I dived into a little bit of some stats here, form-wise, and I'm not sure we've ever seen this under Pep. Over the last five games, City are 12th in the form table with six points from 15. And over the last 10 games, they're seventh with 16 points out of 30. So it might be a little bit early to say it, but is the dynasty coming to an end? Well, that's one of those where any other team, and I I have no bias towards Man City at all. I, I couldn't care less about Manchester City. Any other team, you said that that was Arsenal, you said that was Liverpool, I would agree. And I think that it would be quite clear in people's opinion that the bubble had burst. You look at Liverpool last season, for example, the bubble had burst and there was no real coming back from that. With Man City, because they've essentially got unlimited wealth, because Pep Guardiola is such a a very good tactician, you always expect them to pull it out of the hat. You might not necessarily want them to, but you always expect that within you know, maybe a month or so, they're going to go on a run where they win 20 games in a row and you just sat there thinking, well, what what is the point in football? It's so disheartening for Arsenal fans and for Liverpool fans to watch things like that. But it's also a sense of inevitability about it. And I have no doubt that that's what will happen. It might not. And I think I've got more doubt than I've ever had. Uh, I still think they will do it, like you say. But if there's ever been a ch- stage where I would be saying, hmm... I'm not quite so sure, but for me, the the fire lighter or the, the 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 igniter for them should and hopefully be De Bruyne. Now, if he comes back and can pick up his, you know, his bad injury, he's going to take. You know, it'd be unreasonable to expect him to hit peak form straight away. Two or three games in, he comes back. He starts feeding those balls back to Haaland, who's on a bit of a drought. Alvarez is playing outstanding. We've got Doku. Once he comes back from his doc, uh, his knock looking good, then you would certainly expect that form to pick up significantly. And we know, we all know what they've done. Their record in the last three years over March, I think it is, or April, where they've like won every single game for the whole month for three years in a row. So that is still very much highly likely to happen. But this would be the first time I'm genuinely, there's a, a, a little bit of doubt in my mind on whether they can do that. And the key is, if Arsenal, Liverpool, even Villa keep doing what they're doing, if they can build up enough of a lead that that makes that more difficult, then it's going to be a lot harder for them. And moving on to that, you've got Arsenal and Villa both win again uh, at the weekend uh, to keep up their title challenges. So Arsenal go top, Villa went second very briefly before Liverpool got the draw. Liverpool now second, but equal on points with Villa. And Villa, um, you've got to say, one, are they doing a bit like I keep saying with Liverpool, that they went a goal down. They had, uh, and I think, again, the red card changed it for Brentford and they managed to come back and win 2-1. But they're now starting to win games when they don't seem to be playing particularly well. Uh, they played obviously very well against Arsenal, very well against City. But the, the the point I wanted to make and just it sort of popped into my mind is what a difference like two years make. Can you remember the the 
um, the Stevie G days of a few years ago where they'd spent all that money, there was all that hope and they were floundering almost near the relegation zone. Emery's come in. Yes, they've backed him and yes, he's bought very, very astutely in a lot of ways. And all of a sudden, they're, they're, they're third in the league, one point off the top and we're talking coming up to halfway through the season. So basically, all I'm hearing is Daryl is right, Daryl is right, Daryl is right, because that prediction was so outlandish at the start of the season. We're now at Christmas time. They're sitting quite comfortably, as you say, one point off the top. They're going to win league. I'm not sure it was that outlandish, because I don't don't think (laughs) I hugely disagreed with you that they would come forth, given how well they did last season. They're certainly good. They're in with the contention. The, The question is, is how much does City pick up? And how much does Spurs drop the Spursiness? Because I still think Spurs, if they can refine that early season form they had under Ange, are a risk to, to Villa, as it were. And that could be top four in terms of uh, in any order that you want, but Arsenal, City, uh, Spurs and uh, Liverpool. So Villa, there or thereabouts, but they are doing a, a bloody good job of every game, getting the points, getting it done, making it look far more realistic each game. Well, let's come on to the uh, quote-unquote game of the season. I know it gets banded about a lot, um, but this weekend's meeting... The game League top two. after the game of last, uh, last weekend, which was the game exactly. of the season. Exactly, the game of the season last weekend. Um, it's Liverpool-Arsenal, of course, uh, separated by a point. As we've already said, Villa um, level on points with... Liverpool, ironically, by the time we get to this game, 5.30 on Saturday, Villa could be sitting pretty at the top of the league. Uh, They've got Sheffield United on Friday night, which you'd expect them to win. Um, So we'll see. Um, It's been a promising season for Liverpool and for Arsenal. Um, Quite unusual, I think, because I've, as we mentioned about that drop-off that's completely unexpected, completely out of the blue from City. Um, I would say that Liverpool haven't, really looked exceptional, but we've discussed every week they continue to pick up those points. Um, and then, obviously, there are certain instances where Liverpool seem to be able to turn it on. We mentioned very briefly about the Carabao Cup that seen them into the semi-finals. Um, absolutely destroyed West Ham. And all it takes is that flick of a switch and Liverpool seem to be absolutely unplayable. And there's always that tendency to be able to do that. Arsenal, on the other hand, um, unbelievably tight, I would say, They had had a lot of chaos last season. They looked like they were going to win it. Me and you called it throughout that we were expecting that drop-off. And this season, they're instead nicking it quite late. We saw the the Luton header at the very end with Declan Rice. And as we've mentioned a number of times, being able to do that, even when you're not at the best of form, is a quote-unquote, as Ian would say, mark of champions. I don't know how to predict this. And I'll let you talk about this in just a second. I've had a thought, I think about it. I've tried to weigh it up with the stats. I've tried to weigh it up with my own personal opinion on the two teams. Liverpool have been near perfect at home this season, obviously, apart from the result last weekend against Man United, which is the only blip in that. Um, that showed slight signs of vulnerability for me. So as soon as someone puts a low block in and looks a counter-attack, Liverpool look potentially threatened by that. Um, Man United obviously did that and were successful, which we've not really seen Man United do throughout the season, certainly not against a good team. Arsenal haven't won a game at Anfield since 
Can you tell me when? Do you remember the last time that they, they beat you at, Ars- uh, at Anfield? Was it? Have a guess. The 5-4 when Ashavin got four goals. It was not. It was, um, if I told you, Lucas Podolski and Santi Cazorla were the goal scorers. Jesus. Um, so I, what, So the, the thing I'd say is, I think if we didn't have the game against West Ham... Um, 2012, the, by the way, just to clarify. 2012. 2012. Then. So yeah. that, that's a good omen. Um, if we didn't have the West Ham results sandwiched in between this, I'd be feeling a lot less confident. But uh, we didn't put out a full team against West Ham, but it was 75-80% of the team and um, we played really well. Um Looks like a you know few players got the goals that Mo had been on a bit of a drought. Scored, Gakpo scored, great goal from Slobozai, particularly after his woeful performance at the weekend. So that will that will have undoubtedly done huge levels of confidence for them. So that makes me far more confident. Um, I mean, for me, I, I've broken it down, and we can just talk about these a little bit and get your opinion as well. I've got three key battles. I would say where I think the game will be won. Um, the first one is by far and away the most concerning for me, which is Trent versus Saka. Now, you do wonder if Jürgen will take the more strategic approach, which he's done recently, which is put Gomez at right back and put Trent in midfield rather than expose Trent to Saka, because Saka will rinse him all day, every day. That is a huge channel for Arsenal. Uh, and again, Arteta is going to target that. If, if Trent plays and he plays it right back, there's no doubt that's what they, they've probably been working on all week and, and would be a worry. I think you've got a key battle would be how Rice deals with Slobozai in midfield. I would not be surprised to see Rice do a man-to-man marking job on him. He used to do that quite frequently at West Ham against, um, you know, the the best midfielder that West Ham are playing. We've seen it a lot less from him at Arsenal, where he's been a bit more all action. But I wonder, again, if you are uh, Arteta and being sensible, that would be one thing clever to do, would be to put Rice on slob and close down those runs and that that creativity. Um, And the final one for me, if he plays, which I think he should, because he's been improving every game for me, is Odegaard versus Endo. Can Endo stop Odegaard in terms of getting on the ball in midfield and creating and those opportunities for the wide players of Arsenal uh, in terms of Martinelli and Saka and, and creating things generally. But they're the, the three key battles for me. One thing that does give me a bit of hope now that we've got Mo back in a little bit of form uh, and, of course, the goal machine that is Nunes is Raya has looked decidedly dodgy in the last few games. He went from obviously been, you know, controversially getting uh, promoted to number one, but over the last few games I've watched of Arsenal, he's looked decidedly um, unconfident. So again, if I'm Liverpool, we get Manu as a prime example. I think they're 13 or 14 corners, set pieces, Trent's delivery. That, that is a key way we can possibly win this. When you've got Van Dijk, when you've got Canate and the big guys like that that can that score the headers, that is something that we need to be doing is putting pressure on Reina 
because I do feel like he's in a poor run of form and got a clamour in. As much as I agree with you, I think you have to take into account that Arsenal boast the league's joint best defence on the road. Um, funnily enough, alongside Man United, that's who they're joint with, which you wouldn't have believed that, I appreciate, and I didn't believe it when I read it. But um, Arsenal, I don't think, are going to fly out of the traps. I actually think you would have a better chance to beat them at their place and at the Emirates rather than at Anfield. I think because you've got that tendency to have to come out and impress your home fans. The pressure is certainly on Liverpool. We saw how quickly, and I don't know if you noticed, the, the crowd were subdued. They were a little bit... It was bit terrible. I, I, it was, yeah. It, it, was, it was actually really disappointing given the new stands open. So we're up to, I think it was 57,000 for the capacity now, which is the biggest it's been for 50 years. That's the quietest fat Liverpool... Um, fans I've heard in ages against Man U so that they need to up their game and they need to turn up and I don't know if that's a sign of whereas before when we were at like 45 capacity that's you know your true fans and we're now becoming an old Trafford where that extra 12,000 are all traveling fucking foreigners that don't sing and just there for the experience that aren't really contributing to the atmosphere but I I, I totally agree with you that I've never heard such a quiet crowd for such a big game when there's 57,000 people in the, in the arena. But we need we need to come out of the traps. The one thing I would say is, as much as I agree with you about Arsenal and their defence, it's not really in them, or I certainly haven't seen it, that they would play the deep block like Man U did. I can't see Arteta Park in the bus. I can see him playing defensively to start with and trying to quieten the crowd down you know, keep it solid, nil-nil for 20 minutes and then expand on their their normal game. But I don't see them taking the same super defensive approach that Man U took, which is a a more positive thing for me. I I could be wrong, time will tell, but um, I'm driving back to Bournemouth on Saturday. So I'm making sure I set off nice and early and meeting all the boys down the pub for the half-five kickoff. Do you want to give a prediction then? A very non-biased prediction. 2-1 Liverpool. Ah, Uh, I would expect this one to go down to the wire. I think 2-1 is the right scoreline. I think you've got the team wrong. I think Arsenal will beat Liverpool 2-1 and I think it'll be a late goal as well. I think it will be... I could see Liverpool going 1-0 up, but they have a tendency, do Arsenal, to look very good on the counter-attack. I don't think they'll play a low block. I don't think it'll be anything like that, but I get the feeling that Liverpool might just show their hand a little bit too early and certainly with the power of Saka and Erdegaard and uh, everything else that they've got going forward, I can see a a late slip-up and I think it's such an important game that if Arsenal do win this, I can see Liverpool's heads going down, I can see it affecting the season in the same way that if Liverpool can pull off a win here, I can see it propelling them into that potential title-challenging shot. Yeah, I'm going to, surprise, surprise, I'm going to disagree with you. I think Arsenal go 1-0 up and we come back because obviously that is the one thing that has been very impressive with us this season is no other team, I think, has got even, even close. I think we've got something like six or seven more points than any other team from losing positions. So it wouldn't surprise me if we do get caught, I wouldn't say early, but maybe 20, 25 minutes 
go in one nil down Jurgen reads in the riot act and we come out a different team and we managed it if we then equalize I think there will only be one team in it and we'll go on to win it so I think 2-1 we'll go one nil down and we'll pull it back and again I wouldn't disagree I could see it being potentially a late goal that wins it and the the heartbreaker which I always love and that will make it will make an interesting podcast for me and Grant, this one. Uh, we've obviously been having a bit of back and forth all this week. Uh, I've helped him with a couple of work uh, issues as well. So he owes me one. So he's going to have to take it easy on me if they do win because I've helped him out this week. But um, quickly mention then very briefly, just because it's dog shit, but the Carabao Cup, um, obviously the, the four games this week, uh, Middlesbrough beating Port Vale, surprise, surprise, 3-0. Chelsea beat Newcastle 2-1. We won 5-1 against uh, West Ham and Fulham beat Everton 2-1. I personally hoped when I saw this that the draw was to come. And obviously I'm thinking to myself, come on, give us Middlesbrough. That's who we want. But sadly, I was unaware that the semis had already been drawn. So it's Middlesbrough-Chelsea, Liverpool-Fulham and crazily, it actually gives Chelsea a sniff of a trophy, given how dog shit Poch has been and how badly they've been doing. The day of reckoning has arrived. Um, it's here. Another, another very cringy title of a boxing event. Just call it what it is. It's Joshua Wallin and, and Wilder Parker and then some other big fights in, in Saudi Better Arabia. Better than bring a fire though, isn't it? Sounds like oh. a guy that's eating a, really, that's eating a madras. That's what that sounds like. Not a fucking boxing match, but um, it's yeah, record, I don't know why they call like. names. Uh, um, uh, it's not. We're not at that stage yet, are we? The day of the reckoning surely would be this allegedly agreed fight between Joshua and Wilder. Um, run through well, the count. Surely, no, surely, surely, day of reckoning's got to be Fury Usyk. That's the day of reckoning, surely. Because well, then they, we're going to get a unified champ. I'm sure we got a name for that, but I can't remember it. What it was, something like yeah, Ring of Fire. That's that. I think it's got a bit that. Or is that that one? I thought that was the one. No, I think that's Ring of Fire is the one for uh, Joshua uh, Fury Wilder. But um, so I mean, AJ starting off. We got the main card is AJ uh, twenty six and three in terms of his um, record fighting Wallin, who I've got to be honest, looking him up had a far better record than I expected, which is 26-1. and one. He's only lost to Fury. And in that was a fight that could easily, easily have been stopped because he opened up a ridiculous gash above Fury's eye, didn't he? And if Fury wasn't the champ and he had a different ref that day, that could have easily been stopped. And Fury's move to being, you know, lineal heavyweight champion is all over. But... Equally, I'm not so sure of the names of those 26 victories on Wallen's record are worth talking about, um, really. But personally, I wouldn't say a walkover, but I think it's a pretty easy win for AJ. I'm a massive AJ fan. I have been since he, he first burst on the scene. I always support him in his fights and... I uh, he's one of these that when I watch and in his three losses they've been upsetting they've made you sad like in the same way that if Leeds lose in a weekend or if Liverpool lose in a weekend uh, in the same way that if Josh Warrington loses a fight that you feel an affiliation with him with AJ I'm slightly worried that he doesn't know who he is anymore and I, I mean 
I think it's very hard for us as fans to say who he is anymore as well, because he doesn't seem to be the person who he was in his uh, start up part of his career where he was building towards the titles. He first took the titles and when he took on Klitschko, where he was a guy that blasts through the opponent, absolutely fearless. Yeah, I'm going to get smacked, but I'm going to smack you back. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be ferocious. I think since the, the knockout, or TKO against Ruiz Jr. He's been tentative since. Um, and I think he he has a tendency to think too much. And that's always a, a big issue for any boxer. And mentally, I think that is the biggest issue that he's got going forward. If he's able to come out and think, you know what, get that mindset back, get that winning mentality back. Like he kind of did against Hellenius. I know that there was people questioning him after that, other people questioning him after that, saying that he had had a boring fight until he sparks him out. I think that he could potentially knock out Wallin. I could also see this very easily go into the decision and uh, AJ winning. Wallin is a southpaw. He can easily frustrate Joshua in the same way he frustrated Fury. He's a good boxer. He definitely gave Fury some trouble. You've already mentioned that cut. But I just, I, I can't see past an AJ win. And certainly with this, alleged two-fight deal that's been agreed with Wilder. If it was one of these that was a closer fight, I hate to say it, and we always talk about judging boxing, I get the feeling with the money... He's going to get the decision. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. I, I, I think you nailed it there as well, that he used to be a destroyer, didn't go out, almost, this is probably far too hyperbolic, but Mike Tyson-esque go out swinging wildly he was an absolute monster when you get knocked out by a fat weed smoking mexican that is bound to fuck with your head in a big way and i actually think you're right that he now overthinks things he's not that he doesn't you know it's on his mind shit what if i charge in and as you say for a boxer that is not a good thing to have and i'll be honest i think literally his whole career has changed since the Ruiz knockout junior fight. Uh, that, for me, completely sort of set him back. I think he before saw himself as this kind of Adonis that was unstoppable, fucking built like a fucking superhero, could knock out anyone. And then suddenly, as I say, big fat Mexican lays him out and he didn't expect it. Now, right, it was a short fight, short notice fight. We've got to, there's, there's, there's some mitigating factors in there, but... I agree with you, but I think he wins. I think it's a late stoppage or a decision for me. Don't think he lays him out early. I think you're right. He'll be tentative. I think the fight, the, the wilder fight will be on his mind. That and, and that will, as you say, in that, that thinking mindset. So he won't come out in that ferocious way that he used to throwing bombs. But as you say, I'd, I'd be shocked if AJ lost as you say, but late, late, late KO, if not a decision. It's one of these where he can throw a statement into the mix. If he comes out, knocks out Wallin, who, like you say, he's only been beaten once in his career against the current heavyweight champion of the world. If he knocks out Wallin within five or six rounds, people will start to take note of AJ again and think, hang on a minute, is he back? Is he back to his, his previous form? Has he got that confidence back? If it's a very boring, monotonous fight where he's trying to box him. Don't get me wrong, I, I love a, a, a proper traditional boxing match, but that's not what AJ has ever been about, so I, I'm not sure that's what the best game plan would be. Um, 
moving on to the Deontay Wilder Joseph Parker fight then, because obviously we just mentioned there, there's allegedly a two fight deal agreed with Wilder to take place next year. Um, it's only on the preface that he beats Wallin and that Wilder beats Parker. Now, Wilder is obviously the biggest hitting in, in heavyweight boxing. Uh, he is what all the fans want to see in terms of a proper traditional, I'm going to slug, I've got nothing else about me, I'm just going to throw bombs until I hit, and if I connect with that bomb, you're probably going to get sparked out. If you can bomb me, I'm going to get sparked out. Joe Parker is completely underrated. He is a very, very good boxer. He is never, for me, the true world level. I know he was was obviously previously a world champion, and AJ took that from him. But the last three fights that he's won since that loss to Joe Joyce last year have been confident. They've been on the front foot. He's looked like a different boxer. The difference is the person that he's fighting isn't a boxer. He is a fighter. And if you're fighting Wilder, your absolute key battle is to survive the fight. You survive that fight, you're going to win on points because Wilder does nothing throughout. And if you look as an example of the fight against Luis Ortiz, um, the second time about four years ago, he'd lost every single round up until the point that he just sparked him out. So for Parker, the game plan is simple. Don't get caught by that right hand. Um, He's definitely going to catch you at some point, uh, I'm sure. But don't get caught by it anywhere near the start. If you do get caught by it, make sure it's not a clean connection. Otherwise, you're going down. If you survive, you're going to win this fight. And I I can see an upset here. I can absolutely see an upset. I don't see it personally because I don't disagree with anything you said. Wilder was just a bummer, but a bummer like we've never seen, you know, might be one of the hardest hitting boxers in heavyweight history. Record of 43 wins, two losses, one draw. I was looking into this and, and Parker and I was looking at his record and I was like, do you know what? Maybe this is he's a bit better than I'm giving him credit for with a record of 33 and three. But then I looked at his losses and it's like AJ, no shame in that. Dillian White and Joe Joyce. Now for me, White and Joyce are not anywhere near world level. And to be losing to those two and taking on the hardest hitter in boxing only ends one way. So I've got a dis- I've got to disagree. I think he gets absolutely sparked out, if I'm honest with you. I think I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think the game plan is, is spot on, but name me someone. I think the only person who has managed to go 12 rounds with Wilder, Bar Fury, is Stavern. Every other single fight he's had in those 43. He's laid the guy out. So he will get a chance where he will land on you. And 90% of the time, that's putting you to sleep. So you look at Fury, even Fury in the the fight that he went the 12 rounds, the first one, he still got laid out and he did the Undertaker move, didn't he? So it's it's nigh on impossible to avoid that right hand 100%. But if he does it, I think he wins. I think it's as simple as that for me. I I, I just don't see it myself, as you say, that... Parker has got better, you're right. His, his more recent fights have been been certainly an improvement. He's got better, but if you're losing to White and Joyce, I can't see him beating Wilder. When I was looking down the list and bringing it up on Wikipedia and looking, and I'm like, that guy's a decent fighter, that's a good, that's a good win. And then I saw them two. I mean, White, let's be fair, White 
is pretty good. And you could argue there's no shame in that. Losing to Joe Joyce when he's had his face smashed in twice, is it now, by Big Bang Zhang. Nah, I'm not having it. Big Bang Zhang. Big Wilder is winning this one by a KO for me and sets up the fight that actually, apart from Usyk Fury, we all want to see, which is AJ Wilder. Let's run through very quickly the other fights on the card. Um, There are a number of mismatches and it's just about getting the big names on the card and throwing them against whoever's there available, I think. Um, Start with Daniel Dubois versus Gerald Miller. I think this has sleeper fight of the night written all over it because it's a very intriguing matchup. Um, Gerald Miller, big baby, he is such a knob. He does all his talking outside of the ring. He very rarely does it with his fists realistically against anyone big and as of note. Um, since he's come back from that suspension, he's had three low-level wins. We've not really seen him under the bright lights on a big stage, certainly not to this level. Dubois had the the world title opportunity. He was stopped. He he never looked good enough in that fight. I know there was the low blow blow controversy. It wasn't a low blow. Let's let's just not... Oh, sorry, it was a low blow. Let's not end that um, it, it wasn't. And... The way that he had conducted himself after that fight, basically saying, I'd won, it's a travesty, blah, blah, blah. It never sits well with me, especially because it seemed like sour grapes. Um, I don't know who's going to win it. I I really don't. It's probably the best fight on the card because of that unpredictability. And if Miller does win, we know what he's like on the mic. I'm sure he will try and go backstage or something and call out um, AJ before his fight or some bullshit like that. He'll do something exciting, I'm sure. If Dubois can beat Miller or even knock out Miller, which would be interesting, I think Miller is gone for good. It's one of those where he would just be condemned to the shadows for life because Dubois isn't world-class for me. And in the same way that White and in the same way that Joe Joyce aren't good enough to be at that level, if you lose to someone like that, it pretty much condemns you to the sort of the mid-card position for the rest of your career. Genuine question for you, and you, I'll be honest, no disrespect, you probably don't know the answer. Do they do drug testing in Saudi Arabia? Yes, so they have to drug test before all these fights because they're still regulated. Um, and I, I know what you're going to say, if they didn't, <laughs> Miller's probably backstage right now as we speak. That's what um, I'm saying, fucking, fucking uh, needle in his ass, banging the roids in. But no, I wondered if that, obviously... Sometimes some of these places like Saudi Arabia, some of the reason that they're chosen for fights like this is their, shall we call it, slightly lenient athletic commissions compared to more established places like America, like England, where you're going to be put through proper drug testing. But fair enough. Um, No dispersions cast on Big Baby Miller there, by the way. But when you've got a history of popping roids in the biggest fight of your career, then that is always going to haunt you in terms of people are always going to ask that question. But I don't disagree with you. I think it's a, it's a is it a 50-50 fight? I mean, I, I, I liked Big Baby Miller before. He, he was on a bit of a roll before the Royd situation and he got halted. Um, he's a fucking unit. He's thick. Uh, he's got a good chin uh, and a good punch. I think Debar's overrated, if I'm honest. Certainly not world level. So, um I could actually see Miller winning, if I'm honest, on this one. Agreed. That's what I mean. I think it's very unpredictable. I think it could go either way. And if Miller does win, like I say, 
He's so wildly unpredictable in that sense as well. I could see him getting a mic and just start calling people out. And if Fury's there, for example, he'll be like, oh, I'll take yeah, you call out. Like Usyk. Yeah. He's that type of twat, and he'll just of go he straight, yeah. to, like straight to the you know the main man, as it were, and call out the the biggest dog. But um, yeah, I, I, it, 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 it's 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 probably the closest fight on the card. I would say a lot of them, as you say, we're going to come on to are probably walkovers and very, very easy fights, I think, for the fighters in there. Uh, this one would certainly be, for me, up there with the one that I wouldn't... I definitely wouldn't be having a bet on this one, put it that way. Give a prediction then, because I'll go Dubois by knockout. Miller by points. Ooh, points. Oh, oh, I don't like that prediction. Um as you say, the rest of the fights on the card are pretty much walkovers. It's all about, and that's what this entire situation and the Riyadh season uh, events have been about in terms of let's get the best fighters on. Don't really care who's available. You've got Dimitri Bivol, fantastic, pound for pound great at the moment. Lyndon Arthur, this is going one way. Uh, Bivol is sparking him. Agreed? No doubt. Yeah, it's lucky, one of those. Right? Lucky, so lucky to make lucky to make six rounds, I would say. <laughs> uh, Jai Opataya versus uh, Ellis Zorro. This is the only thing or the only fight that I think anyone can be aggrieved about. And the person that should be aggrieved is Jai Opataya. He had his IBF title stripped from him because, for whatever reason, politics in boxing. The mandatory challenger for the IBF, who they said, if you fight someone else, then you're having it stripped off here. He's actually injured. It's uh, Marias Breedis, I think his name is. Uh, so he couldn't fight him anywhere. Still gets the title stripped off him. Nonsense. Uh, obviously, it's all about blocking that out now, proper tyre. He's no longer the IBF champion. Still holds the Ring Magazine uh, champion, though. And he's arguably one of the best cruiserweights in the world at this moment in time. So I think he's sparring with um, Fury. Funnily enough, because in... isn't he cruiserweight? He's he's in. Uh, is he not in the same weight as Bival and Berbiev? He's in. He's in their weight, is he not? I thought he's a cruiserweight. Is he not? I thought he's higher. As a yeah, sorry, they're light heavyweights. You're right. Yeah, he is. He's yeah. he's, he's, he's one up. Yeah, my, my yeah, my apologies. So um... yeah, because Opatai is sparring with Fury, um, which I think he's actually quite clever of Fury because in prep of Usyk who is you know a smaller man a former cruiserweight actually, a former cruiserweight yeah no, one unified of the cruiserweight champion yeah exactly that so that's it's quite a good idea um Opatire will walk through Zorro again this will be a stoppage and it, it might even be a sort of an early stoppage the one that you are definitely and I would put a lot of money on going to see an early stoppage Hergovic versus Mark Demore now no disrespect to Mark Demore but this is we've talked about mismatches this is like the most ridiculous mismatch that you'll see on this card. And is this I think like it's going me to be versus you? That yeah, he gets sparked out in two, exactly. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to be fun to watch that unless you see an explosive knockout, which might make it a bit better. Could that that, that could be one of those Josh Emmett, uh, Bryce Mitchell type of cares that's yes. that bad that is fucking like in serious tr- medical issue sort of KO that, yeah, is is very very bad matchup for for the other guy but again Hergovic underrated but again for me a bit like he's a slightly worse big bang Zhang. very good 
but he's never going to crack that world title level for me um, and, and take it's yeah, the manager challenger for um, one of those six titles. I, I forget which one it is specifically. I don't know if it's the... He would or... beat the fuck out of him there. Yeah, he, he would. He would. Come he on. would. He definitely would. It'd be a mismatch. But um, yeah, we've got that to look forward to. Uh, a very good weekend of sport. It's, as I say, the final episode of, of the Tapping Up before the Christmas break. Uh, we have a few things in store, so we won't leave you in the dark, of course. If we can fit anything extra in, we always make sure to do it for you guys. But um, I just want to say a massive thank you for all your support this year. You have helped transform us from where we were last year. Significantly bigger, bigger reach. Uh, makes this more fun. Makes it you know, less like two men sat in a corner recording this online and, and just talking nonsense to each other. As fun as that is, Ian, don't, don't uh, take any disrespect on that, obviously. Um, but yeah, uh, fantastic year for us and hopefully it grows into next year. Um, you'll hear from us before the new year, I'm sure. But of course, have a fantastic yeah, and just, Christmas. I would echo that. Uh, thanks uh, to all our listeners. Definitely uh, have a good Christmas yourself and a good break. And I'm sure we're planning... Uh, a little booze up in between Christmas and New Year. But yeah, just for, for you know, just to, to add some stats just to what you've said in terms of um, thanking our listeners and letting us grow. When we first started the podcast back in, in August 22, sounds crazy now. Um, I think for the month when we first started, we had 26 downloads. Um, last month in November, we had one and a half thousand. So um that growth in uh, all right it's, it's not come overnight but Rome wasn't built in a day um you know we are 68 episodes in now but we thank people we, we notice we can look at the stats we know that particularly shout out and happy Christmas to our fan in Belgium who is always one of the first to listen but it's very clear from the stats that we can see that we've got listeners in certain countries that the moment we publish episodes, listen. So um, really, really big uh, thanks to you. We really appreciate you. And we hope uh, that you carry on supporting us um, and we can get this bigger and better for you in the future. Yeah. And uh, everyone have a, a very merry tapping up Christmas, which makes me cringe saying it out loud. But OK, I've had a few drinks and uh, it's been a very good week and Christmas around the corner. You can't be upset. At it. Um, thank you all, as I say, for listening. And we'll speak to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>